You're listening to... What's the name of this show? Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestling Source Radio. Brett screwed Brett. This is Hold one. Arm drag. I did it for The Rock. Bishop, you turn the camera off and I'll be naked when you come back. Yahtzee. You're welcome. Go ahead, one, two, three, count the Wrestling Source Radio. My next guest is a stand-up comedian, actor, podcaster, former WWE writer and wrestling superfan. He recently dropped his new live stand-up album titled Sober Dad. Here's a little bit of a taste. I actually have a couple years sober and sometimes I'll go to meetings and I have no choice but to bring a four-year-old boy with me. And it's great. He doesn't know what's going on. He watches superheroes on my phone. He's got headphones on. He loves it. He doesn't know what's going on. But he's got incredible timing. <laughs> like once in a while, a guy would be like, you know, I woke up this morning and I started thinking and then my son will go, uh-oh. <laughs> This kid gets it. This kid, this kid gets it. He hasn't even done his steps yet. And this kid, he sees it all. And then like, I'll get embarrassed. And I like lift up his headphones and I'm like, will you sponsor me? Cause I'm like, this kid gets it. This is generally where my problem is. Just in this general area. My, it generally on the other side of this ear over to, this year, the other that's is essentially where my problem is. Let me do my best, Michael Buffer here. It's a big hello and welcome to Matt McCarthy. That was really bad, Matt McCarthy. Hello and welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Now, forgive me, I haven't been following this as super close as I probably should. But uh, as we record this, has Donald Trump done the job? What's going on? Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty well done. He's um he's out of you know. He was out of options earlier this month, but um now he's officially officially done for. Thank God. Oh, God, just go away. You know, we still we still got all the same problems we have here and uh we still got to figure out a way to uh, you know, sort it all out, but just uh, oh it's just so satisfying that he's gone. Oh, oh, God. A lot of comedians, not necessarily uh, pointing this to yourself, a lot of comedians, their shtick, their gimmick, so to speak, was basically just, uh, I guess, making fun of Trump or just Trump in general, which I get because it was such a, I mean, it's, it was almost like a, a world issue, let alone a, a US issue. But as a comedian, did you find that a little bit lazy where someone's material would just solely be Trump? What's your uh, standpoint on that? No, because I mean it's it's just uh, it's just the nature of comedy. I mean, obviously, political humor is is going to veer that way anyway, and you should be swinging up. But uh, he sets a blowhard too on top of it all that it is like, you know. I mean, when we had Bush in there, it was it was kind of the same thing. A lot of people just couldn't get over what. Because he was dumb, but he was also like Yale dumb. And like Trump was just, 
you know, he's just this wretched grifter and he's just, uh, I mean, he's just the worst. He's just the worst thing I've ever seen come down the pike. It's, it's really a phenomenon. And, you know, I mean, it was like, it it was, it was too, it was, sometimes it was even just too sad to even laugh at because it was just like, this is beyond fucked. I mean, it was like, (laughs) <laughs> this is the closest that this country has come to, you know, uh, all out fascism. Um, and he still got, you know, the amount of people that voted for him that either loved his brand of bullshit, or at least it wasn't enough of a deal breaker, which is sad in and of itself as well. I mean, it's just, fuck man you know i don't know but i mean as far as you know comics talking about him and i mean that's 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 part of our job is to just you know keep pointing out that the emperor has no clothes on do you have a good trump impersonation or you don't uh, go down that uh, way of comedy i've always i've always worked on trying to do a um it's gonna be good it's gonna be very great i have giant hands and uh, uh it's, it's it's not good it's not good Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't usually do impressions, but I, I figured out my Trump impression was, um, cause like his, at his rallies, he'll say one thing loud and then just trail off. Like, he'll just be like, uh, like, it'll be like, uh, the, the, uh, the world trade organization. I mean, it's one of these things people go there and they're going to trade with the whole world. A lot of people are saying they don't like it. I'm not one of these people that just, Hunter Biden. I mean, this kid, Hunter Biden, he's Joe Biden's kid and he's going to be a problem. And he's over there in the Ukraine. I mean, I never did that, but I sure a lot of people are saying Godzilla versus King Kong. You know, it was supposed to come out in May and then they pushed it to November and then it was going to come out over the weekend. But it was, you know, maybe it'll be streaming. I don't know. A lot of people are saying it's going to be a good movie. All the- of his rallies are like that. I think I the best that. one I saw was uh, Scooby do but scooby does nothing doesn't add to the plot uh, someone who um just yeah did the voice to a t and uh, over at a press press conference it was absolutely amazing off the political side of comedy if you uh if you will let's talk about some great content i uh, recently listened to sober dad that's your uh, live stand-up album how's the response been thus far uh great yeah i mean uh, i recorded it at the end of last year so it's like thank god there was a room full of people which who knew that that was a luxury mm. <laughs> until this year got going. Yeah. The response has been great. It was, you know, uh, in the top three uh, for a while, for a few days on uh, Apple music, which is, um, you know, usually you can get some traction going for at least a day, but it was up there for God, almost like a full week, which I was just very um, shocked and, you know, humbled by and, but the um, the show itself, the content of the writing is is stuff that I've been um, working on for a few years. It's it's um, you know very very personal. It's very um, you know funny. It was one of these shows where um, you know before the taping, I was sitting backstage just going over the set, and it was um, it was just remarkable. I mean, I've been doing stand up for God. This is. Um, my 17th year in comedy and it was easily just the most comfortable I've been with a, um, 
with my material, with, you know, the idea of getting to know myself a little bit better on and off stage, frankly, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a question of, is this going to work? I was, there was no nerves about, is this going to be a good show? Because it was material that I'd really worked on, really gotten comfortable with, really figured out how to get in and out of. And it was just, I was, I just was really excited. That was the only nerves that I had. I was just like, I'm so excited to finally put this down on tape and, and get it out there for people to, uh, to, to listen to and enjoy. And, and, and it's, and the response has been, you know, it was one of these things where I was like, I don't need, you know, I don't need to be, you know, Dane Cook or Amy Schumer or, you know, be like the biggest, like, I, I, I feel like I would be uncomfortable with that. I just, I just wanted to put out material that I knew was good and I enjoyed and, you know, just let it speak for itself type of thing. So I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very pleased with it. Just very content, very, you know, again, just, just humbled by the response that it has gotten. Was alcohol or a substance, was that, was that sort of not, I guess, ruining your life, but it, you, it was at a point where it was affecting your life. I mean, uh, I've found with comedy, I guess sometimes the funny things can come out of, you know, we're not saying this is absolute real life tragedy, but, you know, things that are real, um, the, the, I guess the correlation that I'm trying to bring, uh, I'm not sure if you heard of Hannah Gatsby. Um, she had a bit of a run over in America and obviously a lesbian Canadian, but, you know, I think doing a really bad way to explain this, but I'm, I'm hoping you might understand. You know, I think there was a skit where you know she was she was misgendered uh, as a as a homosexual man. That's where the sort of the punchline stops on a stand-up front. But in real life, she actually got bashed. And you know, I guess having an addiction, something that's it's something hard to overcome. Does comedy and real life tragedy does do they kind of mix? But I guess the real punchline people don't necessarily hear sometimes. If that makes sense. Well, I mean, for me, um, it's always comedy comes from can come from a place of discomfort. I think it's uh, it's also similar in, you know, when I look for the similarities between pro wrestling, you know, the art of pro wrestling, um, of the storytelling in pro wrestling, and stand up comedy, or typically any comedy in in general, but specifically stand-up comedy there is that pursuit of justice you know um there is that um pointing out you know not too dissimilar with the trump thing you know whether it's politics or you know my relationships or kids today uh it is that thing of look point seeing that thing that you find peculiar or incorrect with the world because that is why that's why like comedians who swing down are so detestable because it's just uh, there's there's nothing there's nothing likable about it you know red fox said as long as you're likable anything you say will be funny and it is because that that's the only time that comedians because it's just it's just such a load of shit when comics get upset on twitter or whatever it's like oh this cancel culture oh the pc police oh you can't be funny anymore you can't be funny anymore it's like bullshit you know if you're if it's funny there's no argument you know the reason that certain comics feel like they're in a box is because they're just pigs 
and suddenly they can't get away with that anymore. Whereas like uh, you look at somebody like a Dave Chappelle or George Carlin or Richard Pryor or, or even like, you know, you go further back to Lenny Bruce or, 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 or the like, or like Dick Gregory. It's like, these are people that, well, Dick, Dick kind of let his politics take the front seat over the, uh, over the comedy kind of like a Mort Saul too. It's, it, it is, it becomes that fine line of whether or not you're going to be a, a comedian or you're going to be a preacher. You know, it would have been interesting to see if Bill Hicks had lived. I feel like his politics may have overtaken the, the, the comedy, but who's to say, I don't know, but it, it, it's that thing of, they are funny and it's hard to be offended when they are being so funny because there's such an element of truth in it. Or even if it's just, it's so obvious that there is a joke happening, you know, that like with Dave Chappelle, there are certain things he talks about or even the way he jokes about them that you're like, I could see why someone could take this as being offensive or a misfire but you 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 truly are missing the joke at that point whereas there are other comedians where i'm like you know what this this was off target or this was you know they were swinging down or or just straight up they're wrong and this is not funny but as far as uh, substance abuse or sobriety I mean, it became such an integral part of my life, you know, being in recovery that it was like, this is something that I, it's just my comedy on stage, I'm going to draw from my own life. So this is naturally the next thing that I wanted to talk about. But there is a, put it this way, when I'm talking to other recovering addicts, uh, there are things that will find funny that the average person on the street would be aghast at because they can't relate because they don't see the truth in it. So there was a lot of uh, trial and error of seeing, oh, oh, this isn't, <laughs> this, this will play to a certain segment, but not to everyone. But yeah, I mean, my, my, my drinking and my using was completely out of control. You know, it, it could have been a lot worse, but it's, you know, there's no point in, I know for me, it had become unmanageable. I'm just very lucky that I was basically given the opportunity to put it down and move past it and be able to begin to heal myself and my relationships and, and ultimately my, my career. It was one of those things, you know, the, the first week I was sober, it was very, um, my life was a mess, but there was in the back of my mind of like running through like, well, what are some things I can be grateful for on the list was certainly, this is definitely going to make me a better comedian. Um, and I have certainly found that to be the case, you know, absolutely. I don't know if you can comment on this or not. Um, we're going to touch on it a, a bit more in depth um, soon. Uh, being a former WWE writer, I guess there would mm. be a lot of hours, working hours, hard working hours, and obviously potentially, drinking uh, there to sort of I guess not necessarily sleep it just it was just a, a part of the process was was that a bit of a culture thing or not so much um not more or less than anywhere else I mean it's if I found that no matter where I was I could find people that would 
drink the way that I did. So it, it, was, it didn't have anything to do with the fact that I was at WWE because it was, there was certainly plenty of people who the show was over, they went to the hotel and went to bed. And there were certainly plenty of times that I didn't go to bed. But I mean, you know, I've, I've heard, put it this way, <laughs> you know, being a comedian, I, it, more times than not, I'm performing in bars and you tend to, I tended to feel like drinking was part of that culture of, of comedy. And to a certain extent it is, but, you know, I've definitely heard people say things like, um, you know, put it this way. I heard somebody once say, well, I'm a librarian, you know, there's a lot of drinking in that culture. And I was just like, okay, this is, <laughs> that's not a thing, <laughs> you know? So it's just, uh, you, it, it, if you go looking for it, you're going to find it no matter what it is. It's just such a common thing. And I'm not even saying like people that, whatever, I can only diagnose myself. And the, the fact is, is I, I had a problem no matter whether I was in New York or LA or Rhode Island or working for WWE or not working for WWE, the, re the responsibility began and ended with me type of thing. So uh, the Nature Boy Ric Flair was another funny be like, Matthew McCarthy, I got some kamikazes here, baby. And that was a really bad Ric Flair impersonation. Yeah. Yeah, that was terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I only, I only met Flair once and I certainly never drank with him. That's for sure. She's like, Matt, you want to go to Target? I'm going to go to Target with the baby. I'm like, yeah, I'll go to Target with you and the boy. Let's go to Target. I'm going to be an amazing husband to you. I'm going to be an amazing dad to him. We're going to go to Target together like a family. Target, that's where families go. So she's like, great. I'll go get in the car and get the kid in the car seat. And I'm like, great, let me run to the bathroom real quick. She's like, great. I'm like, great. We're like, wonder twins, form of a healthy couple. Activate. <laughs> Push our wedding rings together. Did it. So she takes the kid out to the car. I go to the bathroom and I decide, well, clearly, this is the perfect time to masturbate. So I take, take out my internet phone. And I go to a pornographic website. Have you guys seen these things? They're everywhere. We got to do something. We got to write a letter to somebody. So I'm watching the pornographic video, and there's no sound on it. But I'm like, this is more of a visual thing. I'm in a rush. I'm like, I'm like what, am I going to get thrown off? Like, no, I can figure it out. Like, I need to know who they are, how they met. Like, no, let's just let's do this. So I finish, I, I get out of the bathroom and I'm putting on my coat and I get a, I get a text from my wife and she writes, um, she wrote the word, um. That's a bad sign. Throw um, dot, dot, dot. The Bluetooth on your phone connected to the radio in the car. target without you and I'm like yeah yeah like I'm on her side 
Yeah, I got some thinking to do. You guys, you guys go to Target. See what I do like off the live album, the uh, the Bluetooth skit. And now uh, the reason why uh, I like this one, something similar kind of happens with uh, my wife and I, uh, not to the extent um, with you, but mm-hmm. we mostly drive in my car, the Camry, and uh, we both have our, our Bluetooth connected to this car. So sometimes I'll get to the car trying to hook up my iPhone, but my wife's who's sitting in the house and I'm still in the car um, at the front. It will sync hers and not mine. I have to, you know, call her up or message her and be like, babe, turn off your Bluetooth, turn off your Bluetooth. So I can't say that I've had any sort of uh, X-rated videos play in the car while my significant other was in the car. Um, how, did, how did we come back from that? Well, it was really an opportunity for me to see what my problem was. And, and, and most of my problem is comes from being selfish just being self-centered and that was certainly a eye-opening experience where uh i was like damn man i gotta i've got like because it's like you take drinking or sex or drugs or anything it's just like those are all solutions you know they can and and when they become my solution you know it's like drinking wasn't my problem. Drinking was my solution. And that's my problem. But then once you get those things out of the way, it's like, well, what am I left with? Oh, I'm just left with my, my brain. That's like, mm, you're not, uh, you're not really thinking things through clearly or, or taking others into consideration or it's just that, that sort of very, I just, I just found out how self-centered I was in how many different aspects of my life. And it is one of those things where it's like, when I really started examining, like, damn. Because, like, being self-centered for me was very much a, a paradox because there would be those times where I, like, I'd walk into a room and feel like I'm better than everybody but at the same time walk into the same room and feel like ah, everybody here hates me. I'm the, I'm the absolute worst. So how did those, and all that is is fear. And then how does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself in either trying to, basically trying to run away, either through drinking and using or uh, making, you know, talking shit or just trying to use people or situations to build up my self-esteem or just any, anywhere that I could. And, and that was just one of those times where I was just like, damn, man, like, you don't give a shit about anybody. So that was, it, was, uh, it was one of those things. That, and, you know, after it happened, I called my friend and, and he was laughing. And he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, man, you know. <laughs> He's like, this is really funny. He's like, someday you're going to think this is funny too. And, uh, and he was actually at the show when I, when I told the story on the, on the uh, comedy album at the recording. And he was just like, man. <laughs> He's like, I didn't think it was going to be <laughs> tonight that you thought it was funny. He's like, but it is. It's, it's just, there is, it's just such a, I don't know. It's just such a great gift to be, to, just to be able to be vulnerable and be able to mm. admit when I'm wrong or admit um, 
that I don't know everything or even just admit um, that I'm not perfect type of shit, you know? So what would have been worse? Uh, obviously, your child and your wife hearing the content you were watching or her walking in on you doing what you were doing? What would be worse? Um, well, it's tough to say. I, don't, I, I think the way it went down was pretty bad enough, you know? I mean... <laughs> yeah, you've sat in um, multiple sort of movies and had some cameos, and the biggest thing that I, uh, I guess first became aware of you was college humor uh that was the uh, yeah the jeggings uh, series uh bad man uh which is phenomenal uh but i have to say nicholas cage's agent is definitely among my top things especially with college humor all right listen to me you're nicholas cage no one can ever take that away from you but after the sorcerer's apprentice bangkok dangerous knowing ghostwriter next wicker man you need to be a little bit more selective about your films nikki selective gary all right for example this just came in today i've got it right here you'd be playing a prisoner who asks if he can leave and the warden says yes and then i leave yeah, that's it. Not a very interesting story. So this is the kind of picture you shouldn't be doing. I'm in. What'd you say? I said I'm in. I'm gonna let that one slide, Nick, but your reputation is at stake. You have to be a little bit more discerning. I like being in movies, Gary. I know that you do, but you have to say no to some of them. Like this new one where the hero is a Nazi who can only speak in adverbs. Let's do it. Wait, no, Nick, come on. Now I want you to think hard about this, okay? You'd be playing Superman. I love it. Let me finish. Superman's cat. You'd be playing Superman's cat. I love it, Gary. And everyone on this bus is vomiting, except for your character, who has diarrhea. Count me in. A raunchy teen sex comedy shot entirely from the waist down. Absolutely. With, with those guys, do you have a very big hands on writing the skit and the comedy, or is it kind of like a like a part that's sort of written for you or what's the process like i guess one in writing comedy and with college humor yeah well i mean um something like something like the nick cage's agent that was something that was written when college humor was around they had a writing staff you know they had it it was god it was such a great place and it was like it was a production company you know basically and it was it was very everything was done in-house and it was just um god it was just such a great time to be making content and doing comedy in new york because it was just it wasn't it wasn't there wasn't so much i mean it's just there's so much content now that and self-produced content, which is great, but it also like it's one of those things when the when the playing field gets wider, it also gets thinner because it's the 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 quality of things tends to get stretched as well. And that was a time when, you know, when College Humor was around, it was they had they produced things, they shot it themselves, they they had uh, tremendous writers and performers all all on there. And, you know, a lot of the um, uh, people writing on SNL now came out of College Humor, and so like Nick Cage, that was something where they they wrote it, and I got cast in it, and it's just it's amazing to think of, you know, where College Humor was in those days because it was like once once they got once it was towards the end, um, 
you know, and they moved out to LA and, and it was, you know, they were, they, they still had an office, but they had like, not really studio space or like a, a sound stage, but it was just, they had places to shoot in the building. But that was back when it was just, it was basically like a kind of like a, a garage. It was bigger than a garage, but it was like a storage space out in Brooklyn right near the water and it was just basically they kind of turned that into a makeshift soundstage and that was something that we you know they typed up a script and you know uh, i i got to do it and it was um it was kind of wild because originally when we shot it we had in the agent's office and there's posters behind me on the wall and the people who made the decisions at College Humor in those days was um, displeased with the how the posters looked, you know, the, 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 the actual graphic art. They were like, the kind of looks crappy. So all that stuff in the first Nick Cage agent one, all the posters were then added in digitally later, which the, typically the turnaround time from the shoots to when the stuff would go up on their website uh, was fairly quick. That one took a long time because of all that post-production work that that was required. But it was just, I was part of a, a comedy scene at a time in New York where you just kind of came up with a group of people and became friends with them. And, you know, I got cast in one thing and it kind of led to uh, being pretty regularly cast and stuff. And then the bad man thing came about me, Pete Holmes, and Orrin Brimmer were producing our own content and our own videos and trying to figure out a way to uh, get noticed. And it was, it was just a pure, it just seemed like the, the next logical thing where it was like, because the shit we were shooting, and it was like, this was not a time where you could shoot stuff on your phone, you know, and that like, how, that's just, such a standard thing to happen now like it was really like you need to have a camera you need to have editing equipment and you need to know what the hell you're doing and and most of the stuff we shot like Orn was just so on top he he was really the technical guy you know he had the camera equipment and the and the knowledge of shooting and editing and stuff and and me and Pete were the performers and the, the you know the comedians and the Batman stuff was purely like an idea that Pete had. And then we were like, why don't we pitch this to college humor? So just so that they pay for it, you know, we're like, just so we can have, cause they had more money access to more stuff than we had. And it wound up being like the very first one we did Batman vanishes or whatever it was called. Looks like we're making progress. Well, we can track the money now, thanks to you. Lightly radiated bills. The mob doesn't know that the money's been marked. We should be able to trace it back to its source. And prosecute. There's a willing DA. Harvey Dent. Can he be trusted? Well, he seems to be about the best that we've been... What was that? What, are you sinking away? No. Is this your little vanishing routine? What? Is this the part where I turn and then I turn back and all of a sudden you're gone? No. Everybody's impressed? Harvey Dent. Can he be trusted? Well, he seems to be about the... <clears throat> uh, 
I found something. Wait, you found some? I found some. You found some something? Evidence. You found some evidence. I found evidence. You found some evidence over there. Here. Okay. Someone left some evidence. We would have never found that evidence without you. I'll analyze it with science. We are always in your debt, Batman. That was just the, the one and done idea. You know, it was like every Batman movie, somebody is talking to Batman and they turn around and all of a sudden he's gone. And so the idea was like, well, what if somebody catches him doing it? And, uh, <laughs> and that was it. And it wound up becoming, it went fucking viral and it became the most viewed thing that college humor had. So then it was like, Oh, let's do more of these. And so that, again, it was, we came up with the content and then they produced it. And that even carried over into, you know, because a, a combination of things happened because then once Pete moved out to LA and he started doing a podcast, basically his version of, of what the fuck that got him some attention. And then once he was, you know, he had done Conan, we became friendly with the Conan people. And then that turned into, well, why don't Pete got the chance to develop a, a pilot for a talk show. And then the Pete Holmes show ran, God, I don't even think it was on a full year, but it was, it was just set up to fail because we, it was two different shows at once. It was a sketch comedy show and us making those videos like we'd been doing before. And it was a talk show and it was just too much. It needed to be one or the other. It, it basically, we came up with a formula of like the Matt and Pete videos. And then that was kind of the thing that, you know, once the Pete home show started, it was, I wasn't in every single video and it was like, Oh, they, they kind of figured out a, you know, Pete and Orrin kind of figured out a way to make Matt and Pete videos without Matt. And then, you know, once, once that came to an end, it was kind of like, I was like, you know what? We had a good run. I think I'm just going <laughs> to go my own way and no hard feelings, but, uh, you know, see what the next phase of, of my career is and my development is. And that's basically where I'm at now. You know? And I guess it was in between or after that, uh, I mean, November 2011 to October 2012, WWE creative writer. And I think again, 2016 to 2018, you right. sort of mentioned, hey, uh, you know, pitch the bad man idea to the guys at College Humor. Was it a similar concept? You know, well, you know if, I could, if I could be a writer at WWE, maybe I could pitch some stories uh, that I think would be suitable. Because obviously you're a big wrestling fan and the wrestling fans are kind of like no other fan base. They think they know better than what the guys at the top currently produce and do. I mean, how did that all come about working for WWE? Yeah, they were looking for specifically for TV writers and, and comedy, you know, writers. And so it was one of those things where it's, I always tell people be honest about your interests because this was certainly at a time where it was you could you, you could see it being embarrassing to admit you're a wrestling fan and said I was very open and you know vocal about it and that wound up working in my favor because when WWE started reaching out to TV writers people that we I was in the same circles with were like 
oh, we know the perfect guy. So that, that really is what got me first in touch with, you know, their HR department. And then it was just a matter of putting together a packet and then uh, getting set up with an interview. And so that was the, the, the very end, that was uh, the very end of, I mean, I couldn't say when I had the interview, probably, um, gosh, probably in the middle of September of 2011 was when I first started talking to them, or at least when I first made contact with them. And I probably had an interview with them not too long after that. And then it was a couple months of nothing. And then I started working there at the, the end of November 2011. I was there until mid-October 2012. Didn't kind of knew what I was getting into, knew that it was a volatile work environment, that it was not a typical TV writing gig, knew that it was going to be very time-consuming, which was, I, I still had time to do stand-up at night sometimes, but going out on auditions during the day was, was near impossible. But that said, there still was a few things here and there that I was like, well, this is an opportunity I can't pass up. Even like like with some college humor stuff, with some Batman stuff that we shot, I had already made the commitment. Like I definitely canceled some road gigs when I started doing that show, uh, when I started writing on WWE. But like there was a couple of uh, Batman shoots that I was like, I was just flat out honest with them. I was like, look, I already had the commitment to shoot this stuff. This is not going to be a regular thing. And they were kind of like, well, it can't be a regular thing. You, you know, if you're here, you have to be here. Mm. So then after that, any opportunities I had, I had to really try to either be sneaky or work around it. So like, you know, I did a day on, on the show Louie that I was just able to finagle shooting it on one of my days off at WWE. Really, it should have been a writing at home day. But I was just like, I'll catch up on my work when I am wrapped with this. Or like, even like shooting stuff um, on the Pete Holmes show pilot, I lied and like took personal days and said I was going to a friend's wedding um, (laughs) type of thing. And then I went out to LA and, you know, shot some sketches out here. And then really towards the end of October, it was just kind of fed up with the WWE grind and with the really what happened was is we lost our apartment in New York and then we were like, well, if we got to move, we might as well just move to LA. It's going to happen at any point, you know, at any rate, you know, it's just, we're inevitable. We're moving to LA with the industry that we're in. And plus all the other comics I had come up with in New York had already made the move. So it was a bit of a no brainer. And then it was just fingers crossed, roll to the dice. Maybe the Pete Holmes show will get picked up and I'll work on that. And then even after we moved at the end of 2012, it was still like another year uh, before that show got picked up. And then I was able to work on that for a year. Yeah. And then since then, the last like five, six years, it's just been, you know, bouncing around stand-up gigs and doing the We Watch Wrestling podcast. Um, Great podcast. And then uh, doing sketches on Conan, you know, because being, you know, involved in that kind of, uh, the same circle. And I know all those writers from back in New York and certainly all the sketch guys uh, uh, are, have always been super cool with me and then starting to perform there and stuff. Um, and again, you know, just doing commercials and whatnot. But then it was it was a thing of, you know, I had quit at WWE, but I was definitely good at my job and certainly well-liked 
by the rest of the creative team that in the beginning of 2016, they reached out and were like, hey, how about this? How about you just stay in LA, do your comedy thing, and do consulting for us? And that I did for two years. You know, it was longer than my first run there. And that was just, you know, get an assignment or two uh, every week. Didn't have to go to TV, didn't have to get yelled at by Vince and got to contribute, got to write things, got to pitch ideas. And it was perfect. It was really such a perfect setup, you know, because I was able to do everything I wanted to do anyway, but with consistent income because the nature of this business is so volatile and it's so, uh, it's just hopping from one lily pad to the next. Even even the guys that are successful, there still is that, you know, dread of, well, I'm never going to work again. <laughs> you know, it's it's remarkable. How many people that I know personally that, you know, we would think of as, well, they're set, you know, they're, they're famous, they're whatever. There still is that thing of, ah, yeah, but what's the next thing going to be? It's just, uh, it's just the nature of it, but it's also, there's a lot of, I don't know, freedom to it as well, because there is a, um, it's not the same old thing. That's for sure. It's amazing back in 2016 that they reach out to you and offer you a gig, uh, the WWM speaking of, of course, and say, oh, you stay in LA, do your thing, but, you know, work remotely and consult. I mean, that's that's going to be a good sign. At the, obviously, uh, even though in time of uh, tenure, like, I mean, 2011 to 2012, it's, you know, basically just under a year that you were there. You left a, a, enough of an impression that they felt, well, you could do certain assignments, then that had to be a bit of a pat on the back. Yeah, yeah, it felt it, it was it felt good. Plus, my son had just been born, so it was like I was already in enough of a panic of like, oh my god, mm. how am I gonna? Because it's because it's one thing getting by when it's just me, or even when we were first married, my wife and I. It's like, well, it's just us, big deal. But then now there's a little bit more of a responsibility, uh, not a little bit more, a huge responsibility. I don't know. There also is a a motivation behind that it does like give a big kick in the ass i remember i was on a shoot and i was saying to somebody i was like my wife's pregnant i'm freaking out you know like i'm i'm on a gig like i have a job but i'm still like i'm freaking out i don't know what i'm gonna do and the guy's like now babies make money you know babies just create money it just becomes because you look at that kid and you're just like fuck it and it, and the, the guy was right because it's like they're be i i was it helps get my priorities straight, put it that way, where I'm like, you know, I'm not so intimidated or worried about reaching out or asking for help or doing what I have to do to create, generate income because it's just like, oh, my, my ego was in my way before. Now it's just like, fuck it. I got a kid. Like, let's do this. I, I need to provide now. Was it uh, Vince McMahon? Ah, those babies. Uh, just get yourself an anime. They make money. Was that um, was that the person? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of the man, Vince McMahon. Um, your initial meeting with Vince McMahon as a writer. I mean, uh, how does that go? I mean, how much leeway do you have to speak to the quote-unquote old man about uh, about wrestling, or do you kind of, as a writer, have to pick your spots, as they say? 
Well, you got to speak. You got to you got to pick your spots, but you also have to um, stand up for yourself. That's the big thing with Vince. He doesn't just want people who are going to kiss his ass, um, mm. and he definitely doesn't just want people who are going to be bullied by him. So you have to. I mean, you got to pick the hill that you're going to die on. That's that's for sure. But um, it's it's that was the big thing is the boss likes options. He he wants to hear what you think. He really does. It doesn't mean that he's going to go with anybody's idea but his own. But he is open to hearing everything. Absolutely no question. But you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like you also can't be a pain in the ass. He also, he's the boss. It's his show. So you're not going to be like, I think that's a stupid idea. They're, they're, it's like any situation where there has to be tact. But, um, but the bottom line is, is he says it all the time himself. There's more than one right way to do something. And he's open to hearing it. But again, it's, uh, you, you, he's like anybody else. You tend to start recognizing patterns or recognizing sensibilities um particularly i was there for more of a uh, a, a comedic input and uh, put it this way vince and i have very different senses of humor <laughs> but um that's part of the nothing worthwhile is easy nothing worth doing is easy so it was one of those things where it's like, that's the challenge. It's like, all right, well, what, what is going to work? And when he crumples this one up and throws it in the garbage, well, what else do we have? It, it, it's that type of thing. And it's, it's just, and you don't know what Vince is going to pick apart that particular day. You know, you don't know what he's going to fixate on and be like, oh, God, it's the last thing we do. What about this, you know? And that's why a lot of people don't last in that job, uh, uh, particularly people who come from TV writing, because they they spend a week or two there and they're just like, this is not a TV writing job. Mm. This is very, very different. So mm. the comedy, the comedy background helped. Like, is you obviously you don't just fixate on one idea or one skit when you do a stand up. You have a bunch like, oh, that didn't hit. All right, what have I got now? Well, what I can't, I can throw this curveball at you. And well, yeah, sit, yeah. You got to be able to think on your feet. Absolutely, you got to be able to improvise in the moment, and you got to be able to bomb and not be shattered because of it. You know, you got to be able to, you know, because that, that's that's the most common question you would get either before working there, or before interacting with Vince, or before being at TV, or before being in your first Vince meeting. Any of those different situations, the question is always, "How thick is your skin?" Mm. and that's what it comes down to. How much can you take? Because it is, look at it this way, it is the wrestling business. And that was the old mentality with breaking into the wrestling business. They used to just beat the shit out of you. Yeah. So now I'm in a situation where they're not going to be physically abusive towards me. So it's like, well, how much can you take verbally? How much can you take mentally? Are you going to keep showing back up? And that's, that's just the, that's just the wrestling business, you know, and that's just the, 
the mentality behind it because it's god what like sin Cara was there i remember i was there uh, i might have was i working there at the time or it might have been right before i started working there but there was a match where sin Cara broke his finger and he wouldn't continue with the match and it got him a lot of he got he didn't make any friends backstage because of that you know it's one of these things where it's like no you you keep going you know mm. certainly the business has changed we're not going to have mick foley be blacked out after getting thrown off of the hell in a cell you know thank god that's that that's moving in the right direction of like okay let's let's make sure everyone is is okay here but there is a certain um you you, you your your feelings get hurt or your you know something like that it's a it's a different kettle of fish it was a snake bit from the beginning i think sinkar wasn't it i mean that, what a cursed run that guy had and plus he just from the the stories that i've heard had a uh, the the wrong attitude well, with Vince McMahon, what was the i guess a, a pitch or a story that you sort of i guess came up with whether it was with the team or individually and you just got the i love it um lots of stuff i mean we did a um a fourth of july celebration where it was um you know just every element in it stayed the same from when i thought of it of like hornswoggle in a kiddie pool or i think eve torres was a heel and she gets like barbecue sauce or something spilled on her but <laughs> you know the the thing that i was most excited about was um they can't get the barbecue lit and Kane walks by and the, and and this was a we weren't sure how this was going to go over because um at the time Kane was a heel and was a you know he's Kane so he's like a monster and you know evil and demonic and and all that shit but it was at a point where he wasn't locked into a program with anybody and it really wasn't um you know it wasn't necessary that it was like well god it's the last thing kane would do and it actually wound up kind of being a babyface turn for him uh because from going forward from there i think was when you started getting into the uh maybe the team hell no stuff mm. but at any rate they can't get the barbecue lit and Kane walks by and he lifts up his hands and he does like the Kane thing. And all of a sudden fire comes shooting out of the barbecue. And it is one of those things where it's like, when you're a writer, you write down the idea, the actual execution of it. I don't give a shit. That's somebody else's problem. But at WWE, that is your problem because, you know, obviously I'm not the pyro guy, but I'm not just the writer and I hand it off and you figure it out. I figure it out. You know, I'm when you're at TV, you're producing the segments as well. You know, you're also directing the segment. You're also the acting coach with the wrestlers and you're, you're, it's, it's not a tip. It's not a TV writing gig. It's, it's a, there's a lot more to it, but it was one of those things where it was like, well, how the hell are we going to do this? And then it became, well, Vince loves it. So we're going to figure out how the hell to do it type of thing. You mentioned Team Hell No there, Kane, uh, Daniel Bryan. Uh, did that have your fingerprints on it? I have to imagine so. Um, well, specifically what had my fingerprints on it is the um, the anger management 
uh, <laughs> segments that they did. You know, I wrote the first drafts of those and um, really, because I mean, when you write something, it goes through a lot of different channels. You know, the lead writers, the head writers, Vince, the producers and uh, all of that. And when I say producer, I mean the road agents, the the wrestlers who... Vince takes input from everybody. Even if there's no physicality or there's no match, the, the, the agents, the, the, the producers, they still have input. And the thing that stayed the same from my idea to me writing it to it going through all those people to being shot was Kane's monologue where he, he re, recaps the history of his life and really his career at WWE. I grew up locked in a basement, suffering severe psychological and emotional scarring when my brother set my parents on fire. From there, I shifted around among a series of mental institutions until I was grown, at which point I buried my brother alive. Twice. Since then, I've set a couple of people on fire and abducted various co-workers. Oh, and I uh, once electrocuted a man's testicles. Years ago, I had a girlfriend named Katie, but uh, let's just say that that didn't turn out so well. My real father is a guy named Paul Bearer, who I recently trapped in a meat locker. I've been married, divorced, broke up my ex-wife's wedding and tombstoned the priest. And for reasons never quite explained, I have an unhealthy obsession with torturing Pete Rose. And it was, um, God, it was just one of my favorite things to write. It wound up coming off very well and being very funny. It really was one of those things, too, where um, when they reached out to me in 2016, they wanted to be doing more vignettes and pre-tape stuff. And that was one of the things that I think got mentioned in the room at the time. It was like, well, it's like, why don't we have McCarthy kind of be doing more of those, you know, anger management type things? And then when I was brought back in, you know, I was doing things like Darren Young and Bob Backlin or Gold. Really, the first thing I was brought back to do was to write uh, an arc to team up Goldust and R-Truth. And then maybe my favorite thing that I wrote while I was there on my second run was the um, Miz and Maurice Total Bellas parody that was leading up to Miz's uh, uh, mixed tag against Cena and uh, Nikki Bella. My first run, I was t- typically, I was like the Santino guy, the Zack Ryder guy. And then towards the end of the second run, I was kind of the fashion police guy. Um, other guy, Steve Guerrero was really, I think he was lead writer of SmackDown at the time. And, and he was, you know, obviously he was at, oh, was he at TV or was he just in Stanford? But at any rate the bulk of the stuff was coming from him, but like, say like the, the, the twin peaks stuff we did with the fashion police, my big contribution was, I always came up with the gimmicks on the, 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 the cork board behind them with like pictures of coming up with any David Lynch wrestling joke. I could. So like blue velvet McIntyre or the Bella twin peaks or, the picture of Kane and it says fire walk with me, shit like that. And I guess, you know, obviously being a wrestling fan from basically since you were a kid and being a comedian coming into this environment, you're very aware what it is. You, you understand, but is there that kind of inner mark and just like, man, 
writing like some cool stories for like wrestling. Was there ever that moment or was it so full tilt speed ahead? You never really had that moment to kind of smell the roses, so to speak. No, it was definitely one of those things where it was like, I mean, put it this way. The guys that are still that the guys that were there when I was there, the majority of them are still there. You know, that, that core group of the creative writers and it was really the consensus was if this were any other TV show and it was like this, the environment was like this, I, I wouldn't do it. If it was anything but wrestling, I would never, the positives always outweighed the negatives, you know, because we got to be involved in wrestling and we got to be with, to contribute something, you know, we got to help talent you know find their voices or how to get because there's also something I, I people don't appreciate how much the writers help the wrestlers get their ideas over to vince like it, it i think the perception is very the writers tell the wrestlers what to do um where it is much more of a it's much more of a dialogue between us it's like I mean, the bottom line is if, if this is what Vince wants us to do, this is what Vince wants us to do. And sometimes the writer's job is to, you know, sell Vince's idea to the wrestler and be like, well, here's the thinking. Here's why we would do this. But sometimes it's, you know, you go into Vince's office with a guy and it's, he's like, well, this is what we're thinking because I know how to talk to Vince because there is... I, not everybody knows how to pitch an idea to the big guy and we get that opportunity sometimes um but it was just i'm i will forever be grateful because it's like they got they they gave me the dream job that i never knew that i had you know they they gave me they they let me go behind the curtain and become a part of it and that's 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 forever it's it's um i got to leave my my fingerprints on one of my favorite art forms in the world. And I was certainly never going to become a wrestler. Mm. So it was, it was amazing to be able to contribute in any small way I could. And is there a third run in Matt McCarthy going to WWE in some capacity, writing or consulting? Rule number one in pro wrestling, never say never. (laughs) All right. Vince McMahon calls you. I guess uh, all right, I'm at a booking committee by my pool. We're going back old school. Uh, but uh, got Vince Russo. Uh, he's going to be a silent partner. But uh, I need you to really accept this. But uh, if you don't, uh, i got Jim Carrey on standby. I recently watched The Mask. And <laughs> that's some good shit. Uh, yeah, I'll go there for as long as it takes to get fired. <laughs> Was there ever an official firing or is it more of a Matt McCarthy? I'm, I'm stepping down. Thank you for your time. You didn't get the official, you're fired? Uh, no, not from Vince. I mean, you know, I got a call from <laughs> Dave Kapoor and he's like, he's like, hey man, yeah, we kind of, you know, you know how it is over here. We built up the team again and we kind of, you know, it's not necessary for us to have, you know, a guy out in LA or however he put it. I mean, Dave's my friend and he, it was not a phone call he wanted to make. And it was Mm. one of those things where I wanted to make it as easy on him as I could. I'm like, Dave, I love you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This, it was, they, they did nothing but right by me and I I could never fault them. Was it a similar phone call that, uh, when, uh, 
John Laurinaitis was uh, the talent relations guy where his go-to, I think, was, oh, I could, I could get some work in Japan. Was there uh, anything like that? Well, I, I did say to Dave, I was like, well, can I at least get one more paycheck for kind of severance? And he's like, yeah, I think we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And I get I mentioned Japan there. Uh, I want to talk about, is there, uh, is there legit heat with yourself and uh, one Brian Alvarez or the guys at uh, the Wrestling Observer or the Figure Four? podcasting whatever they do obviously a, a t-shirt uh, with your podcast we watch wrestling is but if it was at the tokyo dome uh mm. is, is there legitimate heat with brian alvarez or is it a it's a loving it's a it's a loving chat if that makes sense no i i think brian gets the joke uh that i'm i'm certainly not making fun of him or dave that i'm making fun of the people that they have to put up with as a matter of fact uh in in doing like it's it's one of my favorite bits to do on on Twitter, and um, Brian wound up following me back on Twitter, so I'm pretty sure he gets it. And and actually, our Patreon uh, uh, interview we're we're doing monthly interviews uh, on our Patreon, and we watch wrestling. We just today, uh, Vince and I uh, had like a nice 45 minute conversation with uh, De Meltz himself, uh, Dave Meltzer. So. Was it the first time you've ever spoken to Dave Meltzer? Uh, no, I mean, I've, I've seen him. We would run into him at PWG, uh, especially when it was in Reseda, uh, when it was a much smaller room. And, you know, you could kind of, it's hard not to sneeze on people on the other side of the <laughs> ring. So, yeah, you know, chit chat, never anything huge or like, you know, certainly uh, definitely at StarCast and, uh, I forget what the other one was. Maybe it was uh, in San Francisco for the um, New Japan show. But we've been to a couple, you know, Wrestling Observer Radio Q&As and, you know, had an opportunity to inter interact with Dave during those as well. Being in the inner sanctum at uh, WWE, was it ever put on you, if you leak anything to these dirt sheets, you're you're gone, you're out of here? I mean, obviously, that's a it's a given. Uh, yeah. uh, but, I mean, was it ever sort of instructed you that, hey, if you talk to that Meltzer guy, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's in your contract when you when you start there. It's like confidentiality thing of like you know don't spoil anything and don't leak anything. And there was even there was it it wasn't written out, but there was and it wasn't even it was more of an unspoken thing of like hey, um, put it this way: you had to have your work ID to get into the writers' room because they were very concerned of anybody seeing what was on the whiteboard, and there was definitely certain people who worked there that I was told don't ever mention anything to or around that guy because he's a well-known source for some of the sheets or you know at the end of the day at tv we had a shredder machine to destroy all the scripts so that nothing would get out was it Terry Taylor uh <laughs> he wasn't there when I worked there so I couldn't say yeah. Now that's that's amazing. So they actually have people within the sanctum that they know are potential leaks or if not leaks, but they're still there. How, how does that work? Well, I always assumed it was because you look at some of the information that gets out to the sheets and being in there, you're like, who the fuck are they talking to? Because they don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I think that was more of, it was more along the lines of they're wrong most of the time or they're 
their information was, this is what I think is happening, which is, I mean, it's, it's, and it's no fault of like, I mean, Dave definitely is an institution and Dave is also like a legitimate journalist. So it's like, he knows that, I mean, it's, it's like anything. It's, 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 it's why certain people can get away with saying fake news because it's like, there is a understanding that what we are reporting is simply that it's just what we're being told is happening. Um, whereas any historian will agree that we don't really know the full story on current events now until maybe like 20 years from now, Mm. you know, there's a reason that it takes a while for history books to get written and wrestling is the same way to find out the, the story on what was happening. Cause you talk to one guy, you're just getting one perspective. Mm. Whereas time goes by more facets of the story come out. Cause it's also, even the people that are involved, they only have their own experience to speak from. And uh, I'm a big fan of uh, recently, if, uh, if lockdown in Australia was good for anything, it was for me to become a big fan of not only uh, your podcast, but uh, between the sheets, obviously uh, having 2020 hindsight uh, and looking back at what the dirt sheet guys were writing and, and find out, I guess, what eventuated. So that's a uh, type of cool stuff. And I guess because I'm more of a uh, looking back at my childhood and looking back at the older type of wrestling but sure, do, sure. do you watch the current product now and you said that there's the core group that you worked with is still pretty much there not that you're being uh, harsh or you're being too much of a critic but you'd be like oh, I, I maybe I, w- I could have pitched that idea or this idea or i guess in a nutshell your your thoughts on the current product as you watch um it's not that great but it's not because of the creative team there's there's only one person that can be (laughs) held accountable and it's Vince McMahon and it's anytime there's anything anything going on that doesn't make sense on the show put it this way it makes all the sense in the world to me because I've been there Mm. and I see what they're up against you know it's Vince you know that's that's what it all comes down to that's what it always comes back to and it, it, it and it's always it always cracks me up whenever somebody criticizes the writers for doing their job. It's like, oh God, there's nobody there who could have talked Vince out of that. It's like there's no there's no TV show where the writers' room tells the showrunner, "This is how you do your show." You, I don't care how many great writers came through Seinfeld. It was Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, they would take everything that was written, they would go into the other room, and then they would craft the show, you know? I mean, you watch the show Community. Community is the best example because it was Dan Harmon's show. And there there was even, uh, I've even heard stories that Dan Harmon literally rewrote every episode himself, which is very unusual. Usually it's, you delegate and you're done. And God, what season is it? Is it the fourth season? that Dan Harmon basically got fired from community and it's really, it's called the, uh, the gas leak season because, and that's kind of the explanation when Dan Harmon comes back in season five and we're like, why was everything so strange in season four? Why was everybody not acting like themselves? It's like, well, there was a gas leak. Everybody was acting strange. And it's just, <laughs> it's one of those things too, where watching it, you have to 
to get the full appreciation, you really have to suffer through that season where it is not the same show anymore to get through to the other side. So you can, you can really appreciate Cause there's even like episodes towards the end of season three where you're like, eh, maybe they've lost a, lost something. And then once you get to season four, you're just like, holy shit, we didn't know how good we had it. So my point is anything that you don't like about WWE, it's Vince's fault. Anything you do like about WWE, it's Vince's fault. It is mm-hmm. his show. And that's just the way that it is. Do this I think is, it'll be better once he's out of the way? Definitely. Okay, well, that was going to be the follow-up question. It's a loaded one. I mean, is Triple H and Stephanie, will they be essentially the new figureheads or does Shane McMahon come into to play here? I mean, fantasy booking, I, I'm waiting for a WrestleMania match between Shane McMahon and Triple H with an inheritance on a pole match. Very well might be. I mean, who knows? Nobody knows what's going to happen. But um, it certainly seems like Triple H has a better grasp on what the current wrestling fan might enjoy. But at the same time, he's still Triple H. And, you know, on Wednesday nights, my TV's on TNT, you know? Mm, Yeah, AEW, of course. I guess... uh... Well, this was a theory that I kind of put out, I think, either last year or the year before when Bruce Pritchard was brought, uh, brought back on, I think Eric Bischoff as well. Was there some potentially some political manoeuvring on Vince's part? Maybe as much as he loves his daughter and loves his son-in-law and loves his son, is there a, maybe a thought in the back of his head thinking they're not ready to take over the, the castle just yet and he was sort of propping himself up with some old names to protect himself, if that makes sense? Well, yeah, because they were, I think it was obvious to anybody that um, Heyman had his job and Bischoff had his job because then when the ratings weren't good or there was some sort of a situation where somebody needed to be blamed, that they could be fired. And Stephanie and Shane and Triple H are not going to be fired. Vince is definitely not going to be fired, even though Vince is technically beholden to the stockholders you know and they actually just paid out a huge settlement to a group of essentially shareholders who were like you lied to us about the nature of the saudi arabia thing and this that and the other vince always has an excuse and on those investors calls it's always hilarious to hear him explain like well we know what the problem is and we're going to fix it and then the next investors call is like well so and so was hurt And then on the next investor's call, it's like, well, there's a pandemic. There's no audience, you know? So it's just like the bottom line is, is the bottom line. And whether the ratings are in the tank, whether the merch sales are in the tank, they managed to negotiate a huge TV deal and they are making more money than they have ever made. Even at a creative low point, even at, a ratings low point. They are making more money than they've ever made ever in the history of the company. So there's really not a lot that they can argue with. What was interesting when those two execs, uh, Barrios and uh, Michelle Wilson, uh, were fired very unceremoniously and still kind of without an explanation. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like maybe we're getting closer to a, a point of Vince being held accountable by the stockholders, but also we might be getting closer and closer to a point where 
because there's been so much consolidating in the entertainment industries and Viacom and CBS remerged and Disney buying Fox. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point WWE gets swallowed up by somebody, you know, who knows what that, who that might be. It seems it even, even at the billion dollar scale, the mom and pop outfits uh, are really, really kind of going the way of the dinosaur, unfortunately. Who's more smooth, Vince McMahon or Bill Clinton? Oh, Bill Clinton, without question. <laughs> but uh, Vince McMahon, he can talk, uh, he's, he's talked talent into doing things that they didn't want to do. Vince McMahon couldn't even get his wife elected uh, to the Senate <laughs> in Connecticut twice. Uh, Bill Clinton <laughs> is one of the most, Bill Clinton walks between raindrops. He's that smooth. Mm, okay, yeah, you got me there. Vince is just lucky most of the time, really. Ha-ha, didn't get me that time, did you, pal? Ha-ha. Mm. Um, Matt McCarthy, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, this is where I like to give, uh, I call it the get your shit in spot. Uh, how can people connect with you or find your great content? Uh, you got a wrestling podcast, obviously, the new stand-up album, Sober Dad. How can people get in touch and find all the good stuff? Yeah, it's called Sober Dad. It's available on all digital music platforms. Uh, whatever you use uh, to listen to music or listen to comedy, it's there, ready for the taking. And um, if um, anybody listening to this has a subscription to Sirius XM Digital Radio, uh, it's, it's always a big help to call on any request hours on the comedy channels like Raw Dog and whatnot. Um, to ask him to spin some tracks from Sober Dad by Matt McCarthy. And uh, if anybody wants to reach out or, you know, uh, they, uh, anything like that, they want to follow me online, I'm at McCarthy Redhead on all forms of social media. Twitter and Instagram is where I'm typically the most active. And, uh, yeah, if you, if you like wrestling or even if you don't like wrestling, the we watch wrestling podcast uh, we have new issues up every wednesday and it's um it's great and and it really is something that non-wrestling fans listen to um but they don't stay non-fans for very long and even people who have kind of tuned out definitely have tuned out of like the you know the WWE product we have opened the doors to and opened a lot of people's eyes to the larger world of pro wrestling and stuff that's happening in Japan or on the indie scene or, you know, Christ, before AEW was even a, a, a glimmer in Tony Khan's eye, we were aware of so much of that talent and singing their praises years ago from either attending PWG shows or Ring of Honor shows or, you know, just traveling around the country. It's, it's, there's so many things about the pandemic that has, um, been a bummer and been like truly emotionally devastating and just the human toll but on a much smaller personal selfish level just the fact that me and vince can't travel around to go to wrestling shows anymore and do live podcasts anymore i mean the shutdown happened less than a month before wrestlemania and it was just we we're just sitting there just with our hands folded in front of us, just going, please cure this thing. Please cure this thing. Mm. Please stop this thing before WrestleMania. Please, 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 please. Because it's not just mania. It's a whole week of wrestling shows. And we were going to yeah. do live shows down in Florida. And then, 
The worst thing, too, is this coming April of 2021, WrestleMania was going to be right here in our backyard in L.A., and now that's not going to happen. But you can hear about that and more <laughs> on the We Watch Wrestling <laughs> podcast. Matt McCarthy, uh, I greatly appreciate it. Um, but before I do let you go, uh, I've spoken with the likes of Sarah Shockey and uh, Mo DeRose. I love their podcast. Um, which name eludes me? Why, why is the name eludes me? Marty and Sarah love wrestling. What am I talking about? But oh. I, I gave them the invitation to come out to Australia. I said, I w- somehow I want to get you guys out to Australia, whether it be just for comedy purposes or some wrestling tie-in. How can we get Matt McCarthy to come to Australia? Obviously, pandemic not included here. Say, let's say tomorrow there's a cure and we're all sweet. Would you be interested in coming to the fine shores down under? Oh, my God, of course. You know, I... I we were just talking about this with Meltzer that it's like, you know, uh, Melbourne is, is one of these places where I got to go see a wrestling show before I die. Mm. Um, and we have a, a, a big contingent of listeners, um, out there. Uh, so there, there would be ample opportunity for us to perform. So it's, it's, it would be one of those trips. It would just kind of be one of those things where I think we would, pool our money and you know because we we have our patreon money and we have some t-shirts that we sell from time to time and i think that we would um kind of sit sit back instead of going to as many shows here in the states just so we could you know save up for some plane tickets and we'd be there in a heartbeat you know and i i foresee it happening it's it's one of those things where it's arena mexico we need to go tokyo dome cork and hall uh, and then, of course, we, we got to go to the UK. We got to go to Ireland. I think it's one of these things. When, when this thing is over, <laughs> I don't think you're going to be able to keep us in one place for very long. And I don't feel I'd be doing my part if I didn't plug uh, the local promotion within my area. So I'm sort of close to the Sydney area, uh, which is PWA. That's Pro Wrestling Australia. I know they're doing like a bit of a premiership uh, tournament at the moment. So uh, hopefully after uh, we're done here, give them a quick Google and give them a quick uh, look at because uh, Australia, you mentioned Melbourne, uh, pretty much there's a, there's a hotbed of talent here, which is kind of, you know, they're doing their thing locally as best they can given the situation, but there's definitely a hotbed here of, of talent. And I mean, we've kind of seen that leak through with the likes of uh, the Iconics, uh, Buddy Murphy and uh, Robbie Eagles, especially uh, over in Japan. He's a, he's a local boy here in Sydney. So um, yeah, we'd appreciate uh, Matt McCarthy's support. Hell yeah. No, I, we used to see Robbie all the time at PWG and I think, Billy Kay is one of the most under, I don't, I don't know that she is the strongest in-ring talent, but as far as a performer, mm. I think that she should be a manager. I, I think that she should be like a Bobby Heenan, like the focal point of some of the major storylines going on. You know, I Absolutely. think that she should be in the corner and speaking on behalf of the top heels in the company. Matt McCarthy, his new live stand-up album, Sober Dad. You can check it out on the likes of Spotify or streaming services. You can get yourself a hard copy as well. But uh, very generous with your time. Matt McCarthy, thank you so much. I feel like we've only really scratched the surface on a wrestling side of things and a comedy side of things. We'll have to get you back on the show very soon. Yeah, I'd love it. Thanks for having me, man. Wrestling Source Radio.